1: Graham said, sincere Christians can disagree about the details of scripture and theology. Absolutely. And I'm glad he let us know because that's what we're about to be doing. Uh, Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, and this is my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hi. She's not that short. She just has a new chair today. So um, (laughs) the podcast, as always, is going to be going through some readjustments not in the way we do the podcast just in our little studio here you guys know that we're in a dinky little studio and we keep trying to find the best way to rearrange it Mm -hmm. this is the best we found but it's not great so we're gonna keep on working it so uh, if you stick around with us it might look might sound a little bit different in the future but um this is religionless christianity and you know we don't always debate and discuss theology here on this show but that's what we're doing today typically we're just trying to help christians live a christian life in this secular world and Mm -hmm. um but today it will be a theology day and that's okay because billy graham said so so we're holding (laughs) on to billy graham here um so today as always we're gonna be looking at the news of the week going through some news stories i think there was There was a lot of good news stories. We probably have more news stories than we normally get to, but there was just a lot of good ones that I was interested in and even had to leave some uh, off the episode. There was just too much going on, but we'll be discussing the news and then um, we'll be diving into our Bible topic, which is sort of the conclusion. We've been talking about these two books for Calvinism and against Calvinism looking at the arguments for and against. We've been looking at that the last two weeks. You can find those episodes on the channel. This week, we're going to kind of give a summation of what those arguments were and then just how we feel about them. Um, This isn't going to be some, you know, definitive stance on, you know, this is what we believe and we'll always believe it and we'll defend it to the death. This is just going to be today as best we understand it. This makes sense to us. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's going to be. Uh, I will warn you guys. Uh, I typed up a lot of notes for this episode. Nikki equals my notes with just scripture. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to rein her in here. And this isn't just going to be. No,
2: that's because I'm more like.
1: Scripture time. This with is Nikki. about
2: scripture and not my opinion. So nobody can say you're twisting the word. No, oh, I'm they'll just say reading it.
1: it. I'm We're not twisting anything. it. <laughs> we already know we're twisting scripture, we're taking it out of context. We get it.
2: I um, wrote too much um, context. I'm just kidding. That's but why I have so many pages.
1: <laughs> we get it. This is a touchy subject and and that's why we're saying this isn't some, you know, there's other people that will make the, you know, staunch claim that I believe this and this is true. And we need those people and I hope someday we'll be there. But this is just us where we are today, where we've come from to where we are today. It's best you understand it. And maybe it'll change later on. Who knows? We're always open. And we're always trying to learn. But um, and we understand, right? That, And that's maybe the frustration with Christianity. Um, there is a right. There is
2: a... I was going to say. There
1: is a right to Christianity. Change? Mm-hmm. But it is amazing how two people can read the exact same verse and go, no, it says this. And the other one goes, no, it says this. And you're like, oh no it you know so it's frustrating right and we get it so whatever we say there's going to be a handful of people that go ah you're screwing it up another handful are going to go "Ah, that's great right so we're not trying to upset anybody um and i know as soon as you throw out the Calvinism word you know people's eyes roll back in their head and things come out and all sorts of stuff but that's all what we're i say about. is that
2: I, don't, I wouldn't even call anyone a Calvinist or not. It's just, do you believe this scripture like as it is? Yes or no?
1: <laughs> yeah. So that's what we're going to be talking about in our Bible topic today. But before we get to the news and to the Bible topic, is there anything you would like to say?
2: I had something I was going to bring up and I can't remember.
1: <laughs> that's awesome.
2: Do you have anything? Any prayer requests?
1: Prayer requests. Um...
2: I don't know. I keep praying for my uncle. I know my aunt is, um, he's living with my aunt and yeah, he needs, um, he needs help, um, mentally all around, um, you know, cause he was locked up in prison for several years. So, um, pray for her for wisdom on how to care for him. Someone who needs help, who doesn't want help. And just that readjusting um, into the real world after being in prison for over a decade. So all the things that come with that and the old ways wanting to return and he's not saved. So it's just a really hard situation. So, yeah, please pray for peace for my aunt and for wisdom. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then the only one I can really think of, we have asked you guys to pray for a young man named Josiah uh, a couple of weeks ago. Maybe he just got out of jail and he had reached out to us through another friend that he met a girl who was wanting to get her life right with the Lord. I believe her name is Sarah. We have tried to reach out to her because he gave us her number. We've been unsuccessful in that. So, you know, just pray that The Holy Spirit would be working in Sarah's life. And if that means she gets back to us and we find a way to to connect with her, great. If not, someone else does. And um, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: either way, that she finds that relationship that she's looking for and comes to a place of repentance, that's what we're all hoping for. So pray for Sarah if you have some free time. I'm sure she'd appreciate it. So As always, I do want to give our plug for Cardinal Contingency Solutions. And there was a story I read just this week. Youth group or youth mission group safe returning home from Panama amid civil unrest. And I saw this story and I actually reached out to um, Cardinal. I was like, hey, you guys tracking this story? Sounds right up your alley. So This article goes on to say, I think it's a Seventh Day Adventist um, Mm -hmm. missionary team, and they go to Panama to, I think it's to build a church, is what they're trying to do down there. And Panama, the city, or the country's collapsing around them, basically, right? The cities, or the country's collapsing, and they're sort of trapped there with no way to get out. And obviously, that's a extreme situation, but I would ask does your church, does your missionary team have a plan for when you're trying to build a church in a third world country and the country collapses? Do you have a plan? How do you get out? Who do you contact? What happens if some of your team gets separated? How do you get back together? These are things Cardinal can help you with because they've been spending decades helping us, the U.S. military, do this exact thing. So they know who to contact. They know how to contact them. They know how to get your team back together, how to get through sketchy situations safely. Right. So they can help you build plans and, you know, odds are you'll never need this sort of plan, but you know, it's better to have the plan and not need it than Mm -hmm. need the plan and not have it like these folks did. So consider reaching out to Cardinal. You'll have uh, links in our show notes. You can email them and um, they'll come up with something and it will be good and it'll be beneficial if, like I said, your missionary, church, whoever happens to be, and you're going into some of these um, dicey situations. So consider that. As Also, we are proud members of the Christian podcast community and over 55 i believe podcasts on there you can see a couple here Um, doctrine matters 1618 this is that podcast with the missionary um, who's actually out in the field i believe doing his thing for the lord so a lot of good podcasts on there the great thing about christian podcast community is you can just follow the christian podcast community you don't have to follow every podcaster individually you just follow christian podcast community on apple spotify whatever and you get everybody's show mm-hmm. uh, so it's a good way to sort of subscribe to a bunch of really good christian podcasts without having to dig around and find all of those really good christian podcasts so yep um, all right you guys know what time it is you hear the music it's that time you gird your loins and prepare for our weekly trek through the valley of the shadow of death as we take a look at the news of the week. And we got some doozies this week. So, first up here, um, this story really jumped out to me because we have been talking about the theory of stupidity a lot in maybe the last month or so on our shows. Uh, The theory from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he proposed it in the 1940s. And, you know, we've really talked about how it just so accurately depicts America, you know, in the current time that we live in. And this article is sadly a perfect depiction of what we're talking about. So if you want to read this headline.
2: Minneapolis mom confronts BLM protesters after apartment shooting, not a George Floyd situation.
1: Yep. And then just read these two paragraphs.
2: A Minneapolis mom was captured on video Saturday confronting Black Lives Matter activists who congregated in her her neighborhood to protest the fatal police shooting of a gunman who she claimed tried to kill her and her children. Arabella Foss Yarbrough called police last Wednesday night after neighbor Andrew Teckle Sundberg allegedly fired his gun into her home as she cooked Her kid's dinner, leaving bullet holes in her front door walls and above her bathroom sink. And there's photos to show. I didn't see photos on there, but
1: I didn't either. And there's obviously a lot of different articles. This is just one we found. And it's because it has a video that I'm going to show you guys here in just a few minutes. But she does go on in there to say, I have black children. I'm a woman of color. She declared, Mm -hmm. she says, if I would have lost my life, would you guys do this for me? And you can hear in the background, um, they say, yes, ma'am. And the article notes that this is uh, somebody, Tehran Cruz, um, who is the head of BLM Minnesota, the co-founder. And um, so she says, yes, ma'am. But of course, they wouldn't have done this for her, right? We know that because experience in history tells us they wouldn't have done this. It's only
2: because of police. shot the the
1: police killed a black man but yeah like they don't actually care much about black life as this mom articulated um because she says in there she's yelling at them she said if you cared about him you would have been here while he was still alive which makes sense right he was obviously struggling yeah you don't just get to this point where you're shooting through someone's door when you're doing perfectly well um so they don't care about him right They care about chaos. They care about making their rich liberal overlords money. Um, And the truth is that these rich liberal overlords, they don't really care how this turns out. I'm convinced, you know, um, if your police department goes full Uvalde and does nothing while people are being slaughtered, great for them, right? They can still capitalize on that. They just whip out the the anti-gun, you know, playbook, right? But then if your police department does what Minneapolis did and kills this violent criminal, well, well, he's black, right? Well, we got a playbook for that too, right? Let's just get they out in do. the street. So either way, you know, it's basically you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but why this stuck out to me is the theory of stupidity. And let me get this pulled up here. I just want to play a, a short snippet of this and see if you guys can hear it. Um, if not, I'll explain it in just a second, but I forgot to get it pulled up earlier. So give us just a moment. Okay. There's a lot going on there. So I don't know if you could hear that, but if you were paying close attention or you watch this on your own, she's yelling at them and you can hear somebody faintly in the background and they say, this is not the time or the place. I'm pretty sure is what they say. This is not the time. This is not the place. And I was like, boy, that is exactly right. They could not have said that any better because this protest that they're having here was not a place or a time for truth, right? Right. That's not what this protest was about. Um, They had chaos to bring. That's the point. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, they had those rich liberal overlords to make money for. Um, So again, truth be darned. She's out there saying, if you cared about him, you would have been here when he was alive. She's saying, I'm black. She even goes on to explain, this is not a George Floyd moment. George Floyd was unarmed. He's she unarmed, names a bunch yeah. of other people. This guy was shooting through my door when my children were sitting here trying to eat. And they're going, now is not the time for all your facts and logic. So She's going to teach
2: her kids the truth, though. and They're not going to get caught up in it.
1: Right. And what's interesting is I would guess this lady would have been on their side Because she names all the protests, she names quite a few, I think like four or five, like she's she's aware of of them, (laughs) Yeah, you know, know. but she sees that like, Hey, you guys are doing something that's not the same as what happened in these other instances. And it's just so telling when they say, this is not the time, this is not the place (laughs) for your truth. People get together for a
2: cause and they don't even know what it's all about. And it's funny, like black lives only matter to them after they're killed by a cop
1: right this is a very specific circumstance right and the truth of the circumstances don't matter right and this is why it's the theory of stupidity if you guys remember that episode we talked frequently about the idea of you know it's not maliciousness it's stupidity and not stupidity in the way of iq i'm sure teron cruz is probably quite intelligent Mm -hmm. um But it's this idea of being an easily mobilized, Mm -hmm. mindless mob. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see here. They're protesting and railing against. But no one's going, oh, this was the actual victim here. And she even makes note in this story. And you read some of the other ones that this guy was kind of a nuisance and sort of, you know, a lot to deal with. Like there were signs that he was kind of a lot to deal with. Right. And so it's just such a telling story. Um, We've talked about it. So I just saw this and I thought, boy, I don't know that you can make a better case for the theory of stupidity. They're really just BLM as a whole. But this one in particular, because you've got the actual victim standing there saying, you guys got this wrong. And they go, yeah, we don't want to hear that right now. We got, you know, cops to harass, don't you see? So just crazy. Um, Do you have any last thoughts on this story in particular?
2: No, we don't need to spend more.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just think I'm always it's, like, let's move on, please. <laughs> it's just shame on these protesters, first off, but more shame on Satan's children for organizing them. Because I mean, on honestly, like if something like this happened to my community, I don't even know how I would be mobilized that quickly. But these people, Satan's children that are organizing all of this, I mean, they get these people out at the turn of a, you know. A hat, right? Or a drop of a hat, right? Like, there, something happens, they immediately got a protest going on. You're like, what are these people doing? They Where did they even, come from? I think
2: most of them don't, don't even know what happened. They're just there.
1: Yeah. Was there a cop involved? Hey, let's get out there and march. Yeah. Well, don't you know I'm who's sure. that crazy lady yelling? Oh, she's the victim. Get her out of here, right? No
2: Probably. time for that.
1: So, just shameful. Shame on them, but perfectly illustrates the theory of stupidity. So, uh, The next couple stories, I believe, are going to be kind of from the Christian world, if you will, um, or stuff that's really just more particular to Christians, I think that we should care about. So this first one here, well, this isn't technically Christian, but everyone should care about it. They just don't. But do you want to read this headline, honey?
2: What pregnancy and childbirth do to the bodies of young girls?
1: And then just this first paragraph.
2: Um, after the account, a 10-year-old Ohio girl crossing state lines to get an abortion drew national attention last week. Some prominent opponents of abortion suggested that child, the child should have carried her pregnancy to term.
1: Oh, man. Who
2: are the prominent opponents? Who are they talking about?
1: Uh, there were some, I'm sure. Are who, they who naming
2: knows?
1: them? <laughs> that part, I think, is irrelevant. Um, <laughs> Because this is like, this is what the pro-death cult needed. This is what they were hoping for. This They're trying to make this story. I don't know if you've been tracking this. I've heard this story or seen this headline about the 10-year-old rape victim a dozen times in the last week. And they're trying to make this the crux of the entire abortion discussion, you know. They don't want to talk about what Roe versus Wade really is. They want to have you laser focused on a 10 year old rape victim who was going to be forced, if it happened during this new era, to give birth, right? But I just want to show you this to remind you or not let this dissuade you um, that this has never been what Roe versus Wade is about. Um, You know, they just want abortion, on demand, up to, and in some of these people's cases, even after birth, um, they're perfectly okay with that. Um, Yeah,
2: weird. After the baby's out of your body. Okay, now we know for sure that baby is not your body. It is separated. You can't claim my body, my choice.
1: (laughs) No, but, you know, again, Satan's been a murderer since the beginning. We know that. His children...
2: They, they do what he does. are
1: okay with death, right? They're okay with murder. And, um, this story here, like they're just clinging to whatever is the most heinous story that they can find the yeah. most heinous scenario they can find. And if you remember this, just going back right after Roe versus Wade was overturned, all of the headlines and stories were about 13 year old girls that were raped and having to give birth. You don't know if you were tracking this. I mean, we do because we put the notes together and stuff. But there was a lot of people that had this talking point, the 13-year-old. Well, what do you think about a 13-year-old? You know, all these news outlets get their their sources from the same place, right? They get all their talking points. But, and I don't know if this was the case, but shortly after that, if you guys remember, we talked about Kathy Barnett. Mm -hmm. She was the Pennsylvania Senate candidate who almost won. She was the byproduct of a 13-year-old rape victim whose mother chose life wound up having a young lady who grew up to be very intelligent almost won the senate seat in pennsylvania so they had that story come out and they went okay so the 13 year old rape victim story doesn't really work anymore (laughs) kathy barnett blew that up let's go find something more heinous right well
2: how common is a 10 year
1: old it's not common and that's the point right this is a complete outlier and what they're trying to do is make the Roe versus Wade argument be basically specifically for this 10-year-old girl scenario. Like somehow uh, if Roe versus Wade is done away with, all 10-year-old rape victims will be forced to give birth, even if they die and it destroys why their body. they try to convince
2: people that's what it means? This has nothing to do with Roe versus Wade.
1: No, because again, Satan's children have no problem lying. They will lie to get whatever they want. They're perfectly comfortable with that. And everything about Roe versus Wade, everything about pro-abortion, pro-choice, pro-death, whatever you want to call it, it's all lies, right? And they lie to themselves, maybe to the point where they believe it, but they're certainly aware, at least when they start, that they're lying. Uh, It's a fetus. A fetus isn't a baby. You know, it's a clump of cells, right? They know they're lying. But again, Satan's children have no problem with lying. They have no problem with death. So they just say what they need to say to get to where they want to get.
2: And if you repeat it enough, people believe it.
1: And they certainly have believed it enough. So just be aware this story is out there. Again, as Christians, we can't stick our head in the sand, but this is a complete outlier. Um, this is not what the Roe versus Wade argument is. And even with Roe versus Wade being overturned, there's not just a rampant um, you know, amount of... Or, there's just not some large amount of, you know, conservatives, Republican, whatever you want to call them that are going to be sitting around forcing every 10 year old girl to give birth when it could kill her and destroy her. Like it's a complete ridiculous statement, but they want you to be fearful that somehow overturning Roe versus Wade is what this means. It's not just be aware of it. If this girl or the another story likes this, you know, we may find a girl who was born to a 10-year-old mom. Well, they're going to have to ditch this one. And Especially like, in other
2: countries, though, where they do marry kids off really young.
1: Yeah. I mean... I'm sure... It, I'm well, sure it's happened. Yeah. Uh, but just, again, you know, it's just something that I've seen a lot of, you know. And it's just... It's funny because it was always the 13. And I even responded to family members and responded, you know, to people on Twitter that were like, oh, you want to force a 13 year old uh, or even on TikTok specifically, do you want to force a 13 year old to get her to have a baby? And I remember responding going, boy, I wonder what Kathy Barnett would say to that. And of course, they never responded, right? Because they're like, who's that? What? The lady that was born to a 13 year old rape victim. You know, you can yeah. probably hear the BLM protesters in the back being like, no, it was not the time. Now was not the place for that Truthful statement there. <laughs> Trying yeah. to make a statement here, don't you understand? So um, just craziness. But that's the secular side of the house. That's the satanic side of the house. You expect them to be liars and the truth is not in them. We understand that. It gets even more frustrating when it comes into our own wheelhouse here and the mm-hmm. the faithful, um, if you want to call them that. I would hesitate to call them that, but we got this story here from yahoo if you want to read this headline honey what the bible
2: actually says about abortion may surprise you
1: oh yes
2: oh boy all right is that paragraph there
1: uh yeah okay.
2: in the days since the supreme court overturned roe v wade which has established the constitutional right to an abortion some christians have cited the bible to argue why this decision should either be celebrated or lamented. But here's the problem. This 2,000-year-old text says nothing about abortion.
1: There you have it. The Bible never uses the word abortion. So what more do you need to see? Like, this is the new Jesus never said homosexual. This is that argument, right? They're just reframing it here. (laughs) So, you know, the Bible never said the word abortion. Never mind the fact that the word "abortion" didn't even really exist until like the 1500s, but it wasn't in the Bible, so they don't care about so it. Christians apparently. need to
2: be quiet.
1: Um, yeah, Ugh. so this is just the same as the Jesus never said homosexual argument was insane. This also is an insane argument, but it's gaining steam. Um, again, if you're paying attention to the news. You've seen this version or something similar to this quite frequently. Um, So if you haven't seen it, I would, again, why we're bringing it up, you're probably going to see it or hear about it. You know, just like, oh, well, did Jesus ever say homosexual? You're going to have somebody come up and be like, oh, yeah, well, show me in the Bible where it says you can't have an abortion. And you're going to be like, oh, my goodness. Okay, so... (laughs) Uh, the author says, let me see if I can find it in here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it says, in other words, the Bible was written in a world in which abortion was practiced and viewed with nuance. Oh, yes, the nuance. <laughs> you know, those ancient Jews were even more nuanced on the topic than our blockheaded Supreme Court justices and conservative Republicans. Um, you know, And that's true, right? The Bible, Mm -hmm. it does speak of abortion in a sense. Um, They tend to call it child sacrifice, and they do speak to it of (laughs) sacrificing to Moloch. You can go to Leviticus 18.2, where it says, you shall not give any of your offspring to offering them to Moloch. Uh, Maybe this Bible professor overlooked Leviticus 18.2. Who am I to say um, but it does, like she says, there was some nuance there maybe it's sacrifice I
2: don't know. and that's a lot that's what abortion is. It's sacrificing for your own um, situation or your your life that you want, or yes,
1: you're absolutely sacrificing your because again, they'll go to the ectopic or whatever it's called epto- Ectopic. ectopic pregnancy, the one or two percent complete outlier and go, oh, well, do you want to give birth to a dead baby? Okay, sure. Let's give abortions for all ectopic pregnancies. Fine. Well, let's legalize abortion for 10-year-old girls and ectopic pregnancies, and then ban everything else. See if they're willing to take that argument. I guarantee you the answer is no, because it's not about those, right? Those are outliers that any doctor, any state with any sort of rationale is going to be supportive of. But Um, The verse that they always go to, they always seem to go to this, they really only have one verse to cling to, and it's the verse in Exodus 21, Uh, Exodus 21 verse 22, um, or is my Bible, I have an ESV, the headline on it is the Great Right to Abortion. Um, is how it's outlined. It's not outlined (laughs) like that. Um,
2: The great right.
1: Yeah. So let's hear what God, um, through Moses, spoke, right? Uh, The Holy Spirit inspired Moses to speak. He says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judge determines. There it is, folks. Thus says the Lord. The great abortion argument in the Bible. It's right there. You just heard it. I mean, what could you possibly say against that? Hmm. I mean, please email us. I mean.
2: So they're using that
1: verse? That's the verse. That is, um, and the argument usually goes this way. You know, the Bible claims that the life of the mother is separate from that of the child. And therefore, the mother's life is more valuable. Um, But so what does the Bible actually say, right? Um, Let me see if I can just pull it up here. Go to my little uh, BibleGateway.com. If my internet wanted to work, there it goes. Um, So Exodus... 20 what was it 21 22? 22 22 22 21 22. So what does it say and we're in the um we'll go to New King James probably more people read the New King James I know where n is in the alphabet the alphabet <laughs> there it is yeah so what does it say If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. Just what I read. And then verse 23 says, but if any harm follows, then you shall give life for a life. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and hand for a hand, foot for a foot. So it doesn't actually distinguish who was hurt. In that exchange, it just makes note that if harm follows, yeah, you shall give life for life. So um, I wanted to just read John MacArthur, because I have his commentary, just to highlight what John MacArthur has to say on this topic.
2: I think just because it's talking about a woman with child, it's about the child. It was born prematurely. I mean, obviously, it's about both. If the child's hurt, that means the mom was hurt. Doesn't that make sense? But the mom could be hurt without the child being hurt. But if if this was more about the woman, why even bring up that she was with child?
1: Right. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Just, it seems very weird because it says if they were hurt right and she gives birth prematurely. So
2: it, the, it baby could mean the baby still survives. Yeah, but it can mean the baby is not okay being
1: born surely right, sure but it doesn't say that it but it says
2: no harm follows like it means the baby is okay is how i read it
1: that's the way i read it so what macarthur says and again you know macarthur think what you want of him but this is the bible commentary that i have um he says um he says on verse 23 the principle of retaliation or lex talion's applied if injury occurred to either mother or child. The punishment matched, but did not exceed the damage done to the victim. The welfare of a pregnant woman was protected by this law, so that unintentional uh, maltreatment constituted culpable negligence significantly for the abortion debate. The fetus was considered a person, thus someone was held accountable for the baby's death or injury. Mm -hmm. Again, because it's saying that if harm follows, um, then, or yeah, if harm follows, then you shall give life for life. But it doesn't say if harm to the mother follows or. So Yeah, this is their one verse to cling to. Um, but, you know, so somehow this one verse that doesn't even really fit the narrative, it's just loosely connected to abortion in their mind, I guess, because they're grasping for straws. Somehow this is supposed to counteract the myriad of verses that explain how life is valuable in the Bible, how the Lord's knit you together in your mother's womb, how he knew you before he formed you. Um, you know, different scriptures where, you know, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the mm-hmm. womb. All of that's supposed to be thrown aside because there's one verse in Exodus that can be loosely connected because of the word like premature.
2: They are really grasping for straws. It's insane. It really is. Like- um, They have nothing to stand on.
1: Yeah, I mean, even the simple verses in Leviticus that tells you human sacrifice is unacceptable. No, we have Exodus 21, don't you know? So, yeah. But again, this is important, right? Um, And I think this is important and you see this sort of stuff a lot because this is what it looks like and we've talked about this a lot. This is what it looks like when you let your politics inform your religion Mm -hmm. instead of the other way around where your religion informs your politics, you know? So you say, Hey, I'm a liberal Democrat and my antichrist leaders have determined that we're pro abortion. Um, you know, so let me just go into the Bible and see what I can scrounge around and find that looks like it's loosely connected to abortion. Um, Mm -hmm. And, oh, hey, look, here it goes, Exodus 21. And, oh, also, you know, Nancy Pelosi told me she's a Catholic. So here we go, Christians for abortion. You know, don't you understand? It's right there in Exodus. Um, so that's going to be the argument you hear. Just like the argument you hear, Jesus never said homosexual. Well, Jesus and the God never said the word abortion. Um, it's crazy town but it's out there. You may run into it again.
2: They don't know him. That's why they don't, they just don't, they don't believe his words because they don't know him.
1: Right. And they don't care, right? And They've this goes determined for that, any,
2: you know, professing Christians. They don't know his word. They don't understand it.
1: Well, and they don't want to, right? This is
2: the point that it's so, they're trying to make it say something else that,
1: and this yeah. is something we see a lot, you know, it's like Christianity is, an accessory. I think we've said on here a couple of times, you know, Mm -hmm. I like to wear my Christianity because it makes me feel good or it makes people think higher of me that I have some moral back. I mean, really, nah, it just, you know, when it helps you, you use it, you know, and when it gets in the way of what you really want to do, you just discard it or you kind of find a verse that loosely fits what you want. You make it kind of fit what you need it to fit and you just roll with it. Right. So Uh, It's out there. Be aware of it. Exodus 21, the great abortion verse in all of the Bible. So uh, do you have any last thoughts on uh, the great abortion verse? No, no. Didn't think you did. All right. Let's see what else we got on the docket here. Ah, yes. Here we go. Do you want to read that headline?
2: Democrat-led House passes bill to codify same-sex marriage, redefine institution.
1: Yep. So this was a story I just wanted to hit quickly before we get onto our last real news topic. Um, this article goes on to say that uh, the House of Representatives passed what is called the Respect for Marriage Act. And all Democrats, of course, voted <laughs> in favor of it. But 47 Republicans voted in favor. Um, of basically providing federal protections for same-sex marriage. Um, and I just want you to be aware of it because, you know, again, we get that the liberal, the Democrat side of the house would do this. What are you, what do you expect? Yeah. Right. It's a satanic party. Yeah. But the um, Republican side of the house, 47 basically decided to make a practice that the Lord hates a national law. That's what they wanted to do, and I know we're supposed to be like, oh, we're for equality, you know, we're for freedom. I just personally don't believe that bondage to sin is freedom, so I don't want to sign my name to it, basically. And you know, look, this doesn't have to matter to you, but it does to me. You know, we've seen how giving even an inch to the perverse mm-hmm. left in this country leads them to taking a mile. I mean, just they're look never at-
2: satisfied.
1: No. no, all they're looking for is a crack that they can yeah. get in, um, no pun intended. But they're just trying to look for that crack. And now they have it, right? And 47 Republicans gave them, you know, the, the help they needed. Not that they probably needed any, but they just wanted to sign their, their good name to it just in case. So, you know, not to mention, right, that God has spoken against homosexuality as well as the sanctity of marriage. He's spoken on both aspects of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just don't think, and again, this doesn't have to matter to you, but I don't think we should be um, supporting or be a nation that supports making stands against what God has already spoken on. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think
2: I was just going to say they call it the respect for marriage. But where did you get your idea of marriage from?
1: Right. It's a destruction of marriage act. Yeah, is what it is. And I just think, you know, because we're on this show constantly trying to like, hey, we need to. You know, pray for our leaders and try to get this nation back on track and adhere to these Christian values. That's why our show exists, right? How can Christians sort of wade through this murky mire that we're in? But it's just disingenuous to ask God, you know, to put his hand back on this nation. Know. We you know ask for God's help, ask for his favor in this nation while at the same time telling him we don't really care what he thinks. You know, it really hey, is God, a shame. Need to get with the times, don't you know? Did God
2: bless us even in our sin. Like, that doesn't glorify God.
1: No. So, you know, we're sitting here and I, I would bet, you know, they said the funny thing is the entire Utah delegation of representatives voted in favor of same-sex marriage. They're all Mormons. Yeah, that's weird. Nobody what? is more pro-traditional marriage than Mormons. And yet every one of the representatives sold them out. And yet we're supposed to be sitting here like, Lord, please, you know, bless this nation once again. And he's looking down and like, for what? Right. Like, why? So it's just it's disingenuous. And I get it. Right. We're supposed to be the freedom. You know, let everybody do it. Yeah, I'm kind of tired with that. Uh, I want us to be a righteous nation. I want us to get right with God.
2: There's no freedom apart from
1: God. No, the Ten Commandments are freedom. Yes. Everything apart from that is bondage. If you see so, it as bondage. Yeah. Yeah. It just really gets under my skin, but we'll have a link in the show notes. If you want to go see if your, are um, you know, super patriotic, God fearing Republican congressman sold you out to, you uh, can go find that link, reach out to him. I actually sent a message to our representative on Twitter and praise God. We have a good representative, Matt Gates here. He's a, uh, really good. He voted no. And I appreciate that. I just sent him a message like, hey, you know, I, as a Christian in your district, I appreciate that you took a stand against um, defaming marriage. It means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. He'll probably never see it. Maybe he will. I doubt he'll ever respond, but they need this sort of encouragement. And the ones that have basically um, poo pooed your Christian beliefs, they need to know that like, hey man, like, you know, we can quibble on taxes. We can quibble on A lot of things, but when you start writing into law things that God hates, yeah, you're not getting my vote on that. Like, you can't erase that. (laughs) So, um, you know, don't waste your time trying to, you know, sell yourself to me for the next election. Um, Right. So
2: they know whose vote they're getting and not getting now.
1: Yeah, it's just frustrating. Um, And then we just got one last story here. And this one just really got under my skin. And it's not a new story, but it just keeps resurfacing. It seems like every couple years, or at least, you know, in the last few years, it keeps resurfacing. Um, and when I found this story, and I think maybe this is why it got under my skin so much. It was the front page, you know, centerpiece story on today's Christianity.com. And I was like, goodness gracious. This was from
2: 2019?
1: No. So what? this story is recent. This one was from oh. July 18th. But do you want to read that headline?
2: Uh, blame David, not Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan did.
1: Yeah, so this story is the very essence of looking at scripture through modern lenses. And this previous article down here, uh, let me see. Yeah, this one right here, and I have it pulled up, <laughs> basically makes that case um Perfectly. It says the current debate over what happened to Bathsheba forces us to think deeper about motives and power. Boy, is that not like the words of the year for 2019 and 2020 when that headline was written? Um, (laughs) You know, right in the middle of the Me Too movement, motives and power. Like, oh, man, what really frustrates me about this article um, and just this topic is how clear scripture is. That David's wrong. Like mm-hmm. you can't read that and not see that the Bible writers are making every effort to tell you David screwed up. But like mm-hmm. you know, the Bible's not hiding anything there, right? Bathsheba's not even really mentioned outside of to start, and then I think the next time you hear her, so the stories in Second um, Samuel chapter eleven. You don't even, you hear her name like right at the start and then you don't hear it again until chapter 12, you know, when she's given birth. So she's not even really mentioned in the story, but like, it's not good enough that it's all David, his mistake, his punishment from the Lord, his condemnation from Nathan, the prophet. No, like now we have to go out of the way to make the point that somehow Bathsheba was innocent in this that only david sinned, right and this is where you'll get into the here or hearing the argument that well david raped Bathsheba.
2: yeah that's well I'm the
1: scripture doesn't say that david raped Bathsheba, right yeah. um but they need you to know that only the man sinned and that's the point of this argument or this article and it's about power dynamics this is like the heart of the <laughs> me too movement right it must have been rape. Don't you understand? Because she couldn't consent. David was King. What else should, or what else could she do? Don't you understand? That's the argument that they're trying to make here. Um, but again, the Bible doesn't say that she was raped and it doesn't use language that would indicate that she was raped. Um, and she in fact even goes on to marry David Right, she bears him a son, and I believe she becomes David's sort of preeminent wife of all the wives. You know, he has seven wives, I think, six or seven. She becomes sort of his his main, you know, favored wife, if you will. Um, and she goes on to bear him a son. I think maybe even multiple sons, but I know she bears Solomon to him.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: David's maybe greatest son right after him. But an interesting note here is it even says in Second Samuel chapter twelve verse twenty four. David went in to comfort her after their first child had died because that was the punishment God brought on him. So you're like, she obviously didn't hate David if she allowed him to come in and comfort her in her moment of hurt and pain. So -hmm. you think if this violent rape had happened that caused her to get pregnant and lose her child, that she wouldn't be comforted by this violent... Like how many women
2: are comforted by violent rapists? Yeah, he cared for her.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I just think, you know, there's really two points here, right? At least in my opinion, I'm no Bible scholar, but when I read the text, our pastor is actually going through Second Samuel chapter 12 right now. He would make the same claim. Um, I believe they both sinned. Though David was more to blame. He was the man. He was the king. He was God's anointed. Mm -hmm. He holds the lion's share of the blame. And the Bible makes that clear. It doesn't hide that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But this author, um, she goes on to say, let me see if I can find it.
2: I mean, there's other, there's an instance, I don't know what, Uh, book it's in you probably know like it's brought up when rape does occur and it would have suggested that here
1: right i mean you know who was it like uh uh tamar and
2: was it tamar i don't know wasn't tamar i can't remember yeah but
1: i don't remember um shame on me but no it just when you read it It doesn't read, at least to me, again, I'm not, you know, heavily engaged in like feminist power dynamics and, you know, Me Too culture. So maybe that's why I don't see it that way. But I feel like the Bible is quite clear that they had sort of a consensual sexual relationship um, in sin, you know, but so did she, right? Because they... Mm -hmm. Uh, It was adultery on both of their parts. Well, she
2: knew that he was a godly man. Right. And it seems like, I don't know, she was sinning too. She could have said, hey, what are you doing? Well, again. Knowing he's a godly man and not full of wrath, like he wouldn't have harmed her, she confronted him. So
1: that's why I'm saying. We don't obviously see any of that in scripture. And who knows if. Again, who knows, right? But when you read it, that's not what you're Right.: I think you have to read it with an agenda yeah, to come yeah. out with that idea. Um, but the author goes on in here and she says, "The ongoing debate about this story shows the importance of returning to a text again and again, attending to its details and remaining open to the possibility that we have missed or misconstrued something." So basically, she's saying." Whatever new modern sense of liberal morality is popular in the day, we need to apply it to any scripture and see where it will fit, like Exodus 21. Uh, So, you know, in our Me Too culture, right, David and Bathsheba is an easy one. You got the king, you got the the beautiful maiden who, what else can she do, right? Um, But I think more than that, I think it's a very important point for them to keep attacking this story. Um, cause again, nowhere in the story is, you know, blame placed on Bathsheba. It doesn't exist in the story. Nobody does that, but somehow they're reading into that. Somebody's doing that. Um, you know, and what the point, I think they're missing. One of the points here is that in fact, God cares far more for women than modern feminists do. Um, <laughs> he takes care of them far better than modern feminists do. Um, but they've come to this story and what in my opinion one of the reasons why they're attacking this story um is they have to make christianity sexist much like we've talked about when they're racializing jesus they have to make it sexist they've got to make it racist they've got to make it it's an attack
2: on god usually i mean that's that's what it is it really is if it's an attack on scripture or they're seeing something else going on that they read into it yeah it's an attack on the character of god
1: it's an attack on the character of God. And you have to sort of attack these things from these social justice angles to sort of start this process of getting rid of Christianity in America. Um, and this is going to be one of the points, right? Christianity's always exploited women. Remember David and Bathsheba? Um, so they're trying, but we have to, again, remain resolute to stand against it. And just call out the the BS when we see it and be like, nah, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what scripture says. Um, the mm. scripture makes clear that David was to blame, but it doesn't let Bathsheba off the hook either. So
2: this is just one of the worst things about what's happening to our country, though, is that not so much that wicked is happening, but it's like scripture is to blame. God is to blame.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're definitely like trying that, to blame God.
2: Yeah, that's just, I'm just wondering, like, how far is God going to let that go?
1: Well, you know, who knows, right? Because we're doing everything we can to stir him up from his, uh, from his throne to come down and, uh, I don't know, smite us, I guess. We're doing everything we can. So maybe this is just one more step in that direction. It is one
2: more step. I mean, you know. we know, we see the signs. So we just don't know when.
1: Do you have any last thoughts on any of the news stories, David and Bathsheba, anything like that, before we roll into our Bible topic?
2: Let's get into the topic.
1: All right, you guys, get up, stretch your legs, maybe go grab some lunch. Can I? Uh, oh.
2: <laughs> Nikki's
1: about to read through the entire Old Testament worth of verses here. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. So, too long. um, oh, you know what? I wanted to pull up this website. Uh, I'm not gonna be able to find it. Uh, It'll be on the screen. I just won't have it pulled up right now. But all right. so this is our final week looking at arguments for and against Calvinism. So the first week, you know, two weeks ago, we looked at arguments against Calvinism. And we did that on purpose. You know, we've made it known here, that As we've grown spiritually, we've been leaning more towards the, whatever you want to call it, reform, Calvinist, who knows, right? But that side of the house, um, theologically. So we thought, let's look at the arguments against first. So we did that two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at arguments for Calvinism. And then this week, as I said, we're not going to be giving our definite set in stones, never going to change again beliefs, but just what makes sense to us. And we're going to be looking at, you know, sort of the, the tulip again, we're going to give kind of a summary quick overview of what those points were for both sides and then just give our thoughts on it. Right. Why do we think the way we think? Um, so again, we'd like to hear from you guys keep in mind if you're trying to go down some deep rabbit trail in theology, we may not be the right people for you. We'll do our best to engage with you. Um, but again, this is just our our thoughts and our feelings. And we're going to, you know, reserve the right to change later in life if we need to, and walk back what we say later in life if we need to. If we learn more, corrected more, the Holy Spirit speaks more. I've told you guys I'm in seminary now, so if I learn more, right, then <laughs> um, these may change. But this is just where we're at today. So um, and also, if you want to read the books for yourself, they're pretty short reads. Uh, we'll have affiliate links down in the show notes. You can go check those out. Those will help the channel out. And I would certainly appreciate it. But um yeah, so we're just going to be walking through the tulip again quickly, as quickly as we can. And then once we're done with the tulip, we're going to kind of give our thoughts what we think is pertinent about each one, where we co- kind of stand, what makes sense to us. And then just um, maybe just some interesting points or, you know, Nikki's got 47 verses to read off to you guys um, as well. So one last note before we dive into this, um, because we do have uh, a brother on YouTube that has reached out and, you know, and he'd mention you know, Armenianism and Calvinism. They're not the only two um, soteriologies out there. Right. And he, brought up provisional, provisionalism, I believe is what it's called traditional. And that was
2: Leighton Flowers site, right?
1: Yes. So we went to the website that he looked at and I only want to bring it up just to kind of poke him because I thought it was funny. (laughs) Uh, No malice, just, just for fun. But uh, we may look at provisionalism deeper in future episodes um i'd like to
2: definitely i'm interested
1: i would too because i think probably for most of our life you know we probably lined up pretty closely with a lot of that i would think so who knows maybe we do still
2: it's like we know what it is we just didn't have a name for
1: it i swear in the last three (laughs) years the amount of words that i've learned is just overwhelming but um so if that interests you and your you want to hear more about that, or at least our point of view on it, you know, make sure you're subscribed, following whatever platform you're on. But so, as I mentioned, um, the website, it's Leighton Flowers, I think it's his website, it's called Soteriology 101. And I was just kind of perusing on there, looking around at what, what the website was. Beautifully dev- designed website, really nice website. Um, but if you go under the about section, they give you a rundown of what the provide i think is their acronym like tulip they use provide for provisionalism Mm -hmm. and if you scroll down just a little bit past that there's a lot of comments in there but right near the top one Mm -hmm. of the comments i can't remember the the gentleman's name but they say a lot in there but at the very end they say oh they're talking about Calvinists using the new american standard bible and why was that And he says, well, the fact that they can so easily, he's talking about Calvinists, the fact that they can so easily alter the text to conform to their doctrine doesn't bother them at all because the practice is part of their doctrinal social structure. So that's pretty harsh criticism, right? Um, So you can imagine it's not something that these members themselves would want to be guilty of. Uh, So if you scroll up just a little bit from that guy's comment, um, they give this long sort of... uh, quote from Lorraine Botner, who, if you read against Calvinism, you're quite familiar with.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And one of the quotes in there from Lorraine Botner, she, or he says, some of their writings, he's speaking about the early church fathers. Some of their writings contain passages in which God's sovereignty was recognized. Yet alongside of those are others, which teach the absolute freedom of the human will. That's the exact quote. So, how did this provisionist in the comment section sum that statement up? He says, So, even by Calvinist, or not, I'm sorry, this wasn't the the commenter. This was Leighton Flowers' website, so probably Leighton Flowers. He says, So, even by Calvinistic scholars' own admission, the earliest earliest church fathers did not teach the Calvinistic view of election, but in fact taught the absolute freedom of the human will. A kind of synergism synergism in which there was a cooperation between grace and free will. So I was like, "Didn't they just sort of take that exact phrasing like out of context? They just sort of did away with Mm -hmm. the first sentence, and it just made me chuckle." Right? I'm not placing any blame here. Everybody's guilty of you know doing this sort of stuff. Yeah. And a commenter is not you know whatever. But it was just funny because he was you know mentioned this website. I go and look, and they're like. Calvinists, they twist everything. It's part of who they are. And I look and I'm like, isn't this sort of exactly what you guys are doing here? But uh, who knows? <laughs> Maybe you're not supposed to notice that. So just a little bit funny there. Not trying to make anybody upset. All right. On to Tulip, though. Now to really make people upset because we're talking about Calvinism. So uh, T in the Tulip obviously stands for total depravity. Um, so I'm gonna read the arguments against Calvinism quickly, and Nikki will read the arguments for Calvinism. Oh,
2: I'll so on a page.
1: In for that, in the against Calvinism book, the author Roger Olson sort of makes the point that Armenians they don't really disagree generally on the T or the P, so total depravity and perseverance or perseverance of the saints. So I don't really have anything to offer up there. So do you want to just read the four Calvinism argument?
2: I'm reading from here to here? Uh, Yes. Okay. Total depravity is often misunderstood as understood in Reformation theology. It does not mean that each of us has committed every possible sin or that everyone is equally depraved in terms of outward actions. What it does mean is that everyone is equally guilty and condemned and that there is no aspect of our existence that is unscathed or open to God's grace. No less than our bodies and desires, our mind, heart, and will are under the command of sin and death. The total and total depravity refers to its extensiveness, not intensiveness. That is to the all-encompassing scope of our fallenness.
1: Yep. So, um Again, the Armenian point of view, at least according to Roger Olson, they're fairly okay with that, he says. Um, and the We mentioned in the for-Kelvinism episode, so I'll mention it again here. He says it's worth noting, and he says Kelvin's point is crucial here that when he's speaking of the, um, the bondage of the will or total depravity, it is in relation to sin, not to God's sovereignty. So basically, our wills are bound to sin, and that You know, that's what we choose apart from the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. We will always choose sin apart from the Holy Spirit. So um, that's the T for the U, unconditional election. Um, He says, let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, he kind of makes an argument that election is illogical if it's completely unconditional. So what he says here is. Uh, He says, herein lies another problem. Like all Calvinists, Botner states that God's choice of people to elect is absolutely unconditional. It has nothing to do with anything God sees in the one he elects. And then he says down here, so it is with Botner's explanation that God doesn't choose arbitrarily, but also doesn't choose based on anything special about the persons he chooses. And then he makes note, there is no third alternative. It has to be arbitrary if it's absolutely unconditional. So that's the against Calvinism argument. Um, it's illogical if it's just unconditional without any sort of pretense. He didn't pick you for any specific reason. So okay. you want to read the for well, Calvinism argument?
2: Here, here, and here. Sorry, reading I here to here.
1: Just there to there.
2: Oh, the smaller one? Okay. Yeah. Everyone who takes the Bible seriously must believe in election in some sense. It is a prominent theme throughout Scripture. The real difference, especially between Arminianism and Calvinism, emerges over whether the elect are chosen unto faith or in view of their faith. In other words, is election unconditional or conditional? Can you see anything else?
1: No. Yeah, so um, he also, you know, because the point that they— making against calvinism a lot is reprobation so do you want to read on page 57 about reprobation just i think up there
2: the other side of election is reprobation god's decision not to save some in passages already cited especially romans 9 god is said to be free to choose and to reject to save and to harden to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use romans nine twenty one
1: yep, so basically, you know, in the vein of reprobation, you know, he's making the claim that God isn't choosing some to go to hell, which is what the Armenian would argue, you know that if God is choosing to elect some, he's also choosing to send some to hell. He's saying, God isn't choosing people to go to hell, but rather everyone is choosing hell for themselves. And God is just mercifully choosing to save some. We're saved
2: from the bondage of our will.
1: (laughs) Right. So that's the, that's the Calvinist argument for reprobation. Um, And for the limited atonement piece, um, and this is another argument that, the against Calvinist author um, made quite a few times in different ways that even among Calvinists, uh, many don't believe in the L. So this is where you'll get to like a four point Calvinist rather than a five point or three point. And I know some of the arguments against it is well, there is no really no such thing really as a four point Calvinist. You're either five or nothing. Well, that might be your point of view, but if a four-pointer would disagree with you. I don't know. It's kind of hard to be like, "That's what you believe." And he's like, "No, it isn't, you know so uh, but he makes that point. But then he also makes an interesting point that John Kelvin himself didn't even believe in limited atonement, which is what the L stands for.:
2: So how can you say I'm a five-point Calvinist when that's an oxymoron?
1: Well, and you know they go into length in this these books about the synod of Dort and stuff, where a lot of these Calvinist doctrines were sort of flushed out beyond Calvin's lifetime. So I can't say for certain if Calvin believed limited atonement. I haven't read the Institutes of Christian Theology, so we'll just take his word for it. Um, but uh, the argument that he makes for limited atonement or against limited atonement is see, can I? basically that it would be unjust for god to punish the same sin twice um is yeah. his argument against limited atonement right that um
2: that would be the four one thought. no i thought that would be okay i'm confused
1: no, that would, that's the point that he has in here, that if limited atonement was a thing, that would be essentially God punishing for sin twice. Do you want to read the four argument?
2: I know this happened to be all of your notes. From here to here? I think so. All Orthodox Christians maintain that the atonement is limited, either in its extent or in its nature. Calvinists believe that it is limited or definite in its extent but unlimited in its nature or efficiency. Is that how you say that? Efficacy. Am I pronouncing that Efficacy. Right. Oh, gosh. That was bad. <laughs> Christ's death actually saved the elect. Yes. Yeah, so that's limited atonement. Yeah. You were saying unlimited. I don't know. I was thinking that you said limited when you said that.
1: Yeah, sorry you confused me. But yeah, so essentially the claim here is that Christ's death on the cross is unlimited in its nature, you know, its power to save, but that it's limited to the extent in which it does save is the like Calvinist. Who it are, saves. Right. Not that it doesn't have the power to save everyone, but that it only saves. It's like who
2: did Christ die for?
1: Right. So that would be the limited atonement. Whereas um the Armenian side, I guess, would be that you know, Christ, his um, death on the cross was powerful enough to save everyone, but he allows those to decide Mm -hmm. if they want to accept that free gift, you know, sort of a thing. Yeah, So makes sense. um, The next one is the eye for irresistible grace, and the argument um, he says kind of funny that um, the argument from Armenian theology assumes, and then he makes the joke because the Bible everywhere assumes that God limits himself out of love so that his initiating enable, enabling grace is, uh, resistible. So that is the Armenian point of view on irresistible grace.
2: Okay. I'm doing 99. Chosen in Christ from all eternity, we are called effectually to Christ in time. Through faith, which itself is God's gracious gift, we receive Christ in all of his benefits. And then you
1: want to read page 102?
2: Yeah. All of this means that the gospel is not an experience we have, much less one that we can bring about. It is an announcement that creates faith in the Redeemer who makes it. It comes to us from the outside. It creates new experiences and inner transformation that yields good works. But the gospel itself and the Spirit's effectual calling through that gospel remain distinct from anything done by us or within us. The gospel is God's life giving word, creating a new world out of nothing. Romans four sixteen through seventeen, first Peter one verses twenty three and twenty five.
1: Yeah. So basically irresistible grace from the Calvinist point of view says that God's grace unto salvation cannot be resisted by those whom he calls, um, that they would call the elect, right? Whereas the Armenian point of view will say that God's grace is all powerful to save, but God has chosen to limit himself. So men have their free will. That's their the countering arguments there. So uh, that's for the I, and then for the p here, perseverance of the or perseverance of the saints, or preservation of the saints, they'll say sometimes. And again, the Armenian side of the house seemed, again, the author said they really had no disagreements there. So if you want to just read page one fifteen, yeah.
2: Let us recall the golden chain with which we begin this chapter, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, Romans eight thirty, Paul does not say merely that some of those whom he predestined, called, and justified will also be glorified. In fact, he even puts glorification in the past tense as well, stressing its certainty for all of the elect.
1: Yep. So sort of like hmm. God's irresistible grace, you know, those whom he elects, God will ensure you know, through his grace and the power that they persevere unto the end. Um, So if you're God's elect, you will never fall away, basically. So that is the tulip arguments for and against Calvinism. Um, And again, you may disagree on some of these. We're just using the arguments from the books here. So if you've got better arguments or something like that, we'd love to hear from you in the comments. Um, Send us an email, review, whatever happens to be. Come find us on social media we'd be happy to hear from you guys. So just looking back on these, um, the total depravity, again, if neither of the camps really have any disagreement on that, we don't either. Um, I think the Bible, I feel like is quite clear. You know, it's hard to argue, at least to me, the idea that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that seems pretty clear that we're dead in our sins. You can't Raise yourself to new life when you're dead. You need someone else to raise you. Um, Just like in the beginning
2: when God created Adam and he was dust. um, That's what we are. We're going to return to dust. And God breathed life into Adam. Adam had nothing to do with that life. um, And I think it's very uh, symbolic of... Us being born again, the Holy Spirit, like wind blows where it wishes. Um, You don't know who's going to be born again. Just You had no control over your first birth. And just same with those born of the Spirit.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the idea of total depravity makes sense to me. But I do think it can get lost in the idea if your thought process is, well, I don't do all the wicked things in the world, right? Like, right. if that's your thought of total depravity, then this may be um, difficult for you, I guess. But if you're coming at it from where I believe scripture comes at it from that, and like the author's note, it's not the intensity of our sin, but it's the, the extensiveness of our sin.
2: Well, God is restraining a lot. Right. It's and because of his mercy that we... All don't become sodom and gomorrah
1: yeah so on the t sounds like we don't really have a disagreement with the armenians here which is fine it makes sense to me the total depravity but on to the u the unconditional election this the u and the i is probably that is probably where most people have an issue with um Calvinism, the unconditional election i think a limited atonement I think all three of them. Well, yeah, yeah, the U, the L, the I, you know, in some varying form, there's Calvinists that hold or don't hold to, you know, all of those. So, and I guess they all, and as we mentioned in the previous episode, they have to go in this order, I guess. Yeah, because you know, it, it flows and it doesn't, I mean, not just because it spells tulip, it has to be the total depravity, you're unconditionally elected, got, you know, yeah. Jesus died for the elect. He saves them through his grace, right? So that has to flow in that order. But on the unconditional election piece, um, this was hard for us too, right? And I don't even know. This is one we're still sort of, at least I'll just speak for me. It's still one that I'm working through. I agree with it to an extent. But the problem is, is you get, you always get drug into um, sort of like the hyper Calvinist. Camp. Whenever you start talking about, you know, elect and God's foreknowledge and predestination, they're like, you know, you always get drugged into that camp of like, oh, well, if I dropped this pencil on the floor, then then God made me do it, right? And like all these sort of nonsensical arguments. And but I think, and again, everyone else is going to feel differently, and that's what's so frustrating about reading the Bible with other Christians and stuff, because you read things, and we've even had this discussion about john chapter six right um but when i read it i just can't help but see election coming off the page there um you know when jesus says no one comes to me or whatever except i can't i'm just paraphrasing no one comes to me except whom the father sends or whatever oh, it says I have it right here yeah. i'll just
2: read it all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me i will by no means cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day.
1: So, in that, you know, again, when I read that, like, election just jumps off the page to me, and I feel like... In a lot of these verses, you can read the free will argument into the election argument, whereas I don't feel like you can read the election arguments into the free will. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is like the election argument, they would say, no, read John 637. All whom the the father gives me will come to me. Mm -hmm. That's election, right? But then they go, well, what about this verse where it says, um,
2: right after that is the X one.
1: Well, I'll get to that one in a second, but you know, earlier in John, or maybe even later, it's talks about, you know, um, all those who call on the name. I can't remember the exact verse. Uh, let me see if I can pull it and up. I have
2: some John 10.
1: Uh, I'll just try to pull it up here because I'm going to butcher it and it's going to sound,
2: yeah,
1: maybe it'll sound better than if I actually just mumble mouth through it. Um, well, uh, sound better <laughs> let me see uh yeah so john i think maybe i'm just grabbing one here 35 you know i'm the bread of the life he who comes to me shall never hunger um and he who
2: what chapter is this
1: and he who believes in me shall never thirst i feel like you can read in the argument that like yes everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved that makes sense well, who calls on the name of the Lord? Oh, the elect. Like that seems to flow for me, whereas...
2: Why even use the word elect and foreknown and all that the Father has given me? Like, what's the point in using those words and even talking about it? Yeah, We're supposed to disregard it. And again, this is
1: kind of another topic that at least... And again, I don't know enough about Calvinism to say I'm a Calvinist. But understanding at least this beginner level of it, I remember all the times reading through Romans and John, and you'd come to these verses and you'd be like, oh, great. Like we're talking about, you know, you can see on the board behind us, Romans 8, 29, right? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I remember struggling with those verses. It makes more sense, when you come at it from the unconditional election, you just read it and go, oh, it means what it says.
2: And it's unconditional because it, we're dead in our sins. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. God chose to save us, even though there was nothing in us that deserved it. That's what the unconditional part means. Like, it's not just election. It's unconditional election. The election on its own people have a problem with
1: right which is funny because elected
2: for no reason in ourselves
1: and i guess that would be maybe a discussion to have like do people just outright disagree with all election or where does your level of agreement on election end um and there's also a you know and i've never heard one and maybe it's because i haven't looked but Maybe a more deeper discussion on what does God's foreknowledge mean? Like, what is that? Because, you know, that's what they're going to. And the author here even makes the case that, well, if it's just unconditional, right, he didn't use anything to justify his picking, then it's illogical. Well, that's because maybe we don't understand God's foreknowledge, or maybe I just don't understand it. Please help me out, right? You know, let me know. But
2: well, that has to do with like, who are the lost sheep? Like, when... When If we're foreknown, when did we become lost is the question. Why are we the lost sheep? We're already his sheep, but we're the lost sheep. And over here it says, well, he says, Jesus, well, I am saying, I wrote in my notes here, Jesus will not lose any that the father has given him. And I said, the elect are lost among the tares, which I need to read that.
1: Nikki's so, favorite verse. She's going to get it today.
2: Well, I think it's the best one. I think if you just take that as it is, and Jesus even explains it. I mean, you're a Calvinist if you believe that parable. So Ephesians 1.4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And then he came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke. Oh, um, well, that one doesn't go with it. I'm, I got my notes a little mixed up. Yeah, and then the John six thirty seven. I read that. Um, and then another election one, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed.
1: And that's the thing, too, because we've had, you know, our brother on YouTube you know, they would disagree about that verse being, you know, a Calvinist doctrine verse. But again, and, you know, to each his own, right. But when I read that, I just can't help but read it a a different way, right? I can't help but read that. And then somehow it means 180 degrees from what it says. Um,
2: Is it about a number? Like God just wants a certain number in this group, and a certain number in that group, because Jesus says things like, I have sheep um, like in other flocks and we need to go to them. Like he already knows where they are. And if it's about a number being saved, why not just cause everybody to be saved all at once and nobody else, no more generations be born. You got your number of Gentiles fulfilled. Why go on? But it's because we are scattered throughout generations that aren't even born
1: yet. Well, and that's another part Or another point that, at least for the Calvinist side of things and the election side of things, I find easier to understand, right? Because something that, you know, take the, the gospel into all the nations, right? Preaching the gospel. But I always feel like one of the things that you run into with a more Armenian or probably even a provisionalism side of things with this free will is like, so all these other people had died before the gospel got there. So, right, what happens to them? But in the Calvinist argument, that's simple. Well, they, the ones that needed to hear the gospel, that were elected, they heard it. Mm-hmm. The gospel made it there when it needed to meet there. And it met those who it needed to meet.
2: Well, people were saved were by saved. faith in the Old Testament.
1: Right, because they had The gospel believed. was preached. Right, but like, So the Amazonian tribe, right, that nobody found until the 1800s. Okay, well, they never heard the gospel then, right? Through their own free will, they never had the choice. Whereas in the Calvinist side of things, and this is just my elementary understanding. Well, the reason they never heard is because they never heard, right? The God's timing, you know, he has sheep. But whatever that verse that but you if he read, ain't going to
2: lose any of his sheep, he will send someone out there to make sure if there's one sheep in that tribe.
1: Right. So you would say that those people weren't part of the sheep. They weren't. That's right. why the gospel didn't get there then.
2: Because right. they it weren't will. of the sheep. God is going to do what he decreed.
1: And again, that upsets people. I get it. But to me, that makes more sense than trying to wrap your head around like, well, I know that the gospel is how they believe, but like... God's a loving God. So he probably just saved them anyways. And you're like, I don't know where that's in scripture, right? Well, if
2: they've already determined but, in their minds like that God doesn't even exist, like a lot of people do, why would they even believe the gospel at all then? Because they hate God. So they just say he doesn't even exist.
1: Well, I just mean more for the people that do accept, you know, or do have a faith in God, but hold to the the more free will argument, right? Because when you're trying to say well, these people have never heard the gospel because nobody was there to preach it to them, right? Right, and
2: there is scripture about that. Yeah, who will?
1: Right, so then you're saying like, you try to have to maybe make some mental gymnastics of like, well, I mean, just because they never heard of it, but God loves them anyways. You know, God is love. So maybe he wouldn't punish these people who didn't have a chance to accept or deny. And you're like... Now you're kind of getting loose, I feel like, whereas if you just have the unconditional election, you go, well, yeah, they never heard. But those who needed to hear heard.
2: You just got to trust that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. It's not for us to argue. And again, I may not
1: have the best uh, explanation of what I'm trying to say, but in my mind, that makes better sense to me. And again, that's why we're telling you what we think. You may think we're idiots for what we think, but that's what we think. So...
2: Well, I want to read this parable now because it's going to jump into the next thing. I can't skip over it because then I can't talk about my other stuff. Okay. Okay, guys, I'm going to read this. I don't know how you can interpret it another way. Okay. So the parable of the wheat and the tares. So I'm going to read it all. And I'm going to read the part where Jesus actually explains what it all means. Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Good seed. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this This parable alone just tells us that not all people are God's elect. So God planted the wheat, devil planted the tares. The tares get burned up. Like, do you believe that? I don't know how else, like Jesus says, this is this, this is this, this is this. Do you believe that? Do you believe the devil planted people somehow? There's just people that are God's good seed.
1: Well, and the Bible does speak of Satan's children. I mean, that's a term that is used. So,
2: Oh, they exist. yes.
1: Um, so. I again, verse for that too. And I'm sure that the people are going to come back and say, no, this is what it means. You just missed the context. Fine. I'm sure that there's going to come, but when yeah. we read it again, this makes more sense to our minds when we come at it from a, at least just an election predestination, it fits. It makes more sense to us than trying to finagle it back into a free will sort of argument. That just makes more yeah. sense to us. So hold on, we're running long. So let's just oh, maybe wow. get an extra point or two that you want to get in. I do. Let me read. Really I know, fast. but we can't read all the scripture. So just get.
2: Okay, G- one John or two Ten. More. Okay. it's important Dante. it goes with it. because you said, some children know the devil, okay. They belong to him. So Jesus said to the Pharisees, "If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. nor have I come of myself, but He sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your Father, the devil, and the desires of your Father you want to do. So He who is of God, hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. And then verse 11, um, this is before I'm going backwards. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, limited atonement. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep, limited atonement. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So he's just telling the Pharisees straight up, you don't hear because you are not of my sheep. You are of your father, the devil. This fits perfectly with the parable.
1: Yeah, and again, when we read that with an idea of limited atonement, that Jesus died for his sheep, that fits. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: And he won't lose any. We have confidence when we share the gospel, like you have to share the gospel. When one of his sheep out in a crowd who has ears to hear, let him hear. When they hear the gospel, they believe it. They have faith right then. You don't have to worry about convincing someone the gospel is the power of salvation. Not your convincing. There's no power in anything else but the gospel. So you don't have to worry about how how you have to explain it. Like maybe oh somebody else can explain it better. If you believe it, then say it. They'll yeah. hear it and and they'll come alive. They won't be dead in their sins. They'll you know,
1: just and it's funny because you know one of the arguments you'll hear lies that Calvinists you know they. They don't do missions. They don't do, they don't share the gospel. But again, for us, it's a much more freeing way to share the gospel because you don't have to do really anything other than share. You don't have to come up with clever, clever arguments. You don't have to come up with, you know, a new way of an opener and, you know, combat every, you know, every question. Sharing no, the gospel you share shouldn't the gospel be a burden. And yeah. God will move on their heart. You know, and
2: he's already preparing their hearts. Your ahead job of time. is just
1: to go and share. And yeah,
2: um,
1: and that this will be my last point. If you want to make another point after this, that's go fine. Ahead, and this is not more a point of why we believe this way, but um, it's an argument that you hear a lot, and it's that Calvinism is sort of a, a dead theology or. Again, it's a theology that doesn't do missions or it doesn't share the gospel, which in a sense is kind of frustrating and funny in America, where so many people that profess to be Christians of any stripe don't share the gospel, don't give, don't do missions, but yes, somehow Calvinists are singled out. Uh, it's probably even more shameful for somebody of an Armenian or provisionism mindset that doesn't do those things. Because they have nothing to fall back on, right? Other than their own disobedience. But you know, uh, the Book of First John tells us that one of the ways to know you're saved is that if you do what the Lord has commanded us. So you can say, well, a Calvinist is a is a dead religion because they don't do they don't share the gospel, they don't do missions, they don't take care of the needy because they just assume they're all good and God's going to get who he, who He wants or who He needs. Well, then you would say that person's not a Christian then. Right. They're deceived. So they can call themselves a Calvinist, hyper-Calvinist, whatever they want. But if they're not actually doing what the Lord's commanded, then they're not saved, regardless of what they call themselves. So, you know, we don't go and share the gospel because we think that we need to save people. We go and share the gospel because we were told to share the gospel. You, You do it because you're obedient, right? That's the reason we go. Um, either side of the house, whether you're a free will or an election, right? You go because you're told to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea that somehow a hyper Calvinist disproves the Calvinist theology, no, you're trying to disprove a theology by an unsaved person, right? That's the wrong way to look at it, right? They're they're not saved. They're not doing what they're commanded, and that's one of the ways you know who's saved. So an argument that we would make on that is judge the tree by the fruit. Mm -hmm. Whether someone wants to call themselves a provisionist, Armenian, Calvinist, anything in between judge the tree by the fruit. Are they doing what they're commanded to do? Right. Um, That's how you will know. Do you see fruit of the spirit? That's how you will know if you don't. And they go, well, I'm a charismatic. What? No, you're not right. There's no fruit. There's no obedience. So you just probably like it's an accessory, right? What we talked about. So that's really my last point. Do you have any last thing that you want to say before we end this? So it's not two hours long.
2: No, we can end there. And I mean, if people have questions, we can always make another.
1: I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about this topic. And again, we don't say this to try to poo poo anybody else's beliefs. This is what we believe. And this is why. And this is a very surface and I'm level. I'm not saying
2: I'm defending Calvinism. I'm just defending this is what scripture says. And I don't even say I'm a Calvinist because, no, I, I relate to Christ, not to Calvin. Right.
1: I'm a Christian. And this is where you fall back on the Charles Spurgeon quote, right? He says, if somebody asks me um, if I'm a Calvinist, I tell them, no, I'm a Christian. But if you ask me, do I adhere to the doctrines of grace that Calvin espoused? then yes, yeah, that's what he would say. I'm not
2: bearing Calvin's name. I'm bearing Christ's name.
1: <laughs> right. So anytime you slap a name on this stuff, it gets a little murky. Yeah. But you can't discount it, right? That's what it's called. Um, and again, right. we're still learning these things. So we may learn more or get better understanding of what irresistible grace is and may go, eh, well, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that wholeheartedly. Who knows where it goes? But today... This makes more sense to us. And this makes reading the Bible easier. It makes understanding Jesus, understanding God and the kingdom of heaven easier. Um, Whereas before it took a lot of, you know, like I said, you read Romans 8, 29, you're just like, oh, I, okay, sure, whatever, predestined. I don't know how that even fits or works, but let's just move along. This now you can just read it and go, yeah, praise God, right? He foreknew me. And it was predestined, right? Um, yeah, so it just makes more sense to us. Again, this isn't attacking anybody else's faith or understanding. We get that this upsets a lot of people. It's not our intention. But we just want you to know where we stand after reading these books in the last couple of years of our growth. So we'd love to hear from you guys. Um, but I'll be honest, if the accusation is, you know, your faith is dead, you know, whatever happens to be probably not going to respond. So um, we hope this didn't, you know, burn any bridges. We're still the same uh, religionless Christianity podcast that we've always been for better or worse, but that's all we have. Oh, we do have our sermon recommendation. We do want to get that out of the way here. We got a good one. It's a short one here. So it comes from a church that we've mentioned to you guys a few times, the cross Church. And it's this video right here. Got a great name, ice cream, iPhones, and heroin for your kids. Um, so he's talking about ethics in parenting. And it's a short nine-minute video. Um, just, It's a good thought exercise, mm-hmm. I think, with he, what he brings up there. And um, give it a listen. I think you guys will enjoy it. Um, don't be scared off by the heroin for kids. Uh, he means well. So... That's all we got. We'll be back on Monday with our daily devotionals and then coming back next Saturday, um, doing this thing again, seeing who's left after we dared utter that Christian curse word. called Calvinism forget.
2: We're doesn't matter. We're part of the body of Christ and we're called to love the brethren. That's another um, commandment. So let's not
1: be hateful toward one another. Yeah. Quit hating on us. All right. God bless.
0: (laughs) Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.